Our New Testament reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians. You can find that in your pew Bible on pages 965 and 966. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will, also, will, will raise us also with Jesus And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Gracious God, you sent your Son, who though he was rich for our sake, became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Rich through the the gifts that you provide. both material and otherwise. So we come now to place these gifts back at your feet, to use these tithes and these offerings to further your work both in this place and outside of it for the life of the world and for the glory of your name. And Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would speak, that you would teach us things we've maybe never truly understood, that you would remind us of things we've heard before but but need to hear again. And ultimately, Father, that you would point us to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What's well, good to be with you? Oh, yeah, we are dismissing our children now to Children's Church. Um, so if that involves you, you are dismissed. If you would take your copy of God's Word, turn to Jonah chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 10, found on page 775 uh, in your pew Bible. It is good to be with you uh, as we continue our study of the book of Jonah, which as we are finding out is about much more than than simply a man being swallowed by a fish. Uh, So far we've seen this prophet running from God's calling to preach in Nineveh and God responding by wrecking his through a great storm, and supernaturally rescuing him through a great fish. Last week's passage concluded with Jonah back on dry land after he was vomited out of the fish's mouth. But the credits don't roll. The credits don't roll on the story of Jonah after his rescue because God has more in store for Jonah, which we find in chapter 3. So let us look at our passage and read it together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, 
three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. This year, 2017, it marks the 500th anniversary of an event that that changed the course of human history uh, and is especially kind of important for us as Protestant Christians. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed on the church door of Wittenberg, Germany, his, his 95 thesis, his 95 complaints, which began a revolution and ultimately led to a revolt against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this period of history is extremely complex, but the primary issue driving Luther was this question. How? How does a person come to experience God's salvation? Are we saved completely through what God does? Kind of like what we saw Jonah confessing last week. Uh, Salvation comes, salvation belongs to the Lord. Or, Is salvation mediated to us through the church? And and does it involve our cooperation? In other words, is our our justification dependent upon our our sanctification? And contrary to the Roman Catholic position, the Reformers believed that salvation was, was through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the work of Christ Jesus alone. Now, it's foundational And fundamental as that question of how are we saved is, in our passion sometimes to celebrate and and defend how we're saved, there's another question, a question that sometimes can get overlooked. Why did God save us? Why did God save us? To what end did God save us? For what purpose did he save us? Now, the Bible answers that question in a number of different ways. Certainly, Scripture teaches that God was motivated by by love, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. But in our assurance of pardon for today, we we find another answer to that question of why God chose to save us. If you would look back at your bulletin for a moment. This this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's in the middle section here. It says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, God's rescue of us is not simply for 
us. Our salvation is not just about us, but it's for others as well. God brought us out of darkness into his light so that we might be instruments to proclaim his grace to other people. Now, I suspect that this idea of being called out of darkness and into light is something that would resonate with Jonah. After all, he's seen a lot of darkness over the last couple of days. We've got the darkness of the storm. We've got the darkness of the bottom of the sea. We've got the darkness of being inside of a fish. But now he sees light, the result of God's miraculous grace upon him. And after experiencing God's grace, God places a task before him. It's actually a familiar task. It's, it's the same task that he gave him back in Jonah 1. Go and preach to Nineveh. And this calling is what we're going to explore today in a message entitled, The Missionary and the Mission. And what I want us to see in this passage are two points. First, is that there is no person that God cannot use. And second, that there are no people that God cannot save. There's no person God cannot use. There's no people that God cannot save. Number one, there's no person that God cannot use. Having experienced God's grace, Jonah is now going to be an instrument of God's grace. And it's interesting that after Jonah's rebellion, God just doesn't go find someone else. You know, okay, Jonah, fine, you're not interested. I'll go down alphabetically, I got my list of prophets. I'll just go to the next one. He doesn't do that. Instead, he calls him again after his experience of shame, after coming face-to-face with his sin, after God having to come and rescue him. It's then that Jonah is sent. After all this happened in the last two chapters, Jonah is not disqualified from proclaiming God's message. However, it's more than that. Not only has Jonah not been disqualified, it seems that Jonah is now ready to proclaim God's grace in a way that he wasn't even ready before. Back in the spring, I got the chance to preach up in my hometown of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Okay, I've never done that before. And it was definitely a surreal experience. Um, And in the weeks prior to my going up there and preaching, I got to visit with a high school buddy of mine. We were catching up. And I told him I was preaching in Dyersburg. And his response was, was something to the effect of, you know, that must be really hard, you know, because people, like, know who you are there. (laughs) Which, that's true, right? They know who you really are. These people know the stories of of the dumb things I did growing up, of the things that, frankly, I'm ashamed of. And, and, And there was, there was something nice. For seven years, I ministered in Meridian, Mississippi. My wife and I moved to Meridian, Mississippi. We did not know a single person in Meridian, Mississippi, when we got there. So no one knew me, which made ministry really, really easy, okay? You could come in and just sort of present yourself with a clean slate. You got this, you know, kind of pretend like you got your act together. Now, at no point during my time there would I have denied that I was a sinner in need of Jesus. But, but there wasn't any specific knowledge of any particular sin, My transgressions weren't public, and so they kind of lived in the theoretical realm. What I had done wasn't committed against the people there. And so it made ministry really easy. And so I owned up to that to my friend. But I also said, I'm glad that Christianity isn't simply about being good. 
and having our act together. If it was, I should definitely worry about people knowing what a mess I was. But it's not. Christianity is not about good people being good. It is about broken, needy, rebellious people being rescued by God's grace. And then being given the mission of sharing that good news to other people. Did you see the quote at the top of this, uh, the words of reflection up here at the top of your bulletin? It's a quote from D.T. Niles. and sums this up quite nicely. He writes, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. But it begs the question, why does God choose to do it this way? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense for God to send messengers who are like really impressive, right? People without a past, men and women who don't struggle with sin, individuals whose lives are just sort of put together. Wouldn't that be a selling point for the faith? Wouldn't it be better to get attractive, competent, influential, eloquent, well-respected people to promote the cause so that other people will see these attractive competent, influential, eloquent, respected people and think to themselves, you know what, these Christians, they're, they're really impressive. You know, I think I want to be one too. Now, let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with Christians being nice-looking, intelligent, influential, eloquent, whatever. I'm, I'm not saying those things are inherently bad. The problem is, though, that there's just this tendency within us to rely on those things over and above or even at the expense of being a needy, dependent person who's been rescued by Jesus. See, this is what Paul dealt with in his ministry. It's the passage that we read, uh, that Dave read earlier. Um, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says this, that we, meaning the people who are proclaiming God's message, we have this treasure, this, this gospel in jars of clay, in other words, in ordinary instruments, not flashy, high-end, impressive instruments. Why? It says right here. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Here's the answer to the question. The reason that God uses ordinary instruments, even broken vessels like Jonah is so that when incredible things happen, other people will look at whatever amazing occurrence has taken place and think, you know, God must have done that because there really is no other explanation. He does it this way so that he gets all of the credit. And this is the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of God's people, Israel. You know, the the name Israel, you know what it means? It literally means God fights. In other words... God's people are going to be victorious, not because of their great might or size or whatever. God actually tells them, you're the smallest of the nations. You're going to be victorious because I'm going to accomplish the miraculous through you, for you. I suspect that some of us in this room struggle with the idea that that God could use you to proclaim his grace. God could never use you. Why? Because you've got a past. Or because you have a present. Some of us, we like to talk about our sin, always in the past tense, right? We don't have it going on right now. Back, back, way back then, used to struggle all the time. But not now. Um, but you struggle with this idea because you're still a mess. Your life's not perfect. 
And I get the impulse. But in these moments, what's being made evident is the extent to which we've lost sight of the gospel. Because again, the gospel is not good people being saved through or because of their goodness. The gospel, broken, needy, messy, rebellious people being saved despite themselves. And we get to be testaments to that. Our weaknesses, our past sin, even our struggles with sin in the present, these are not disqualifications for you to be a messenger of God's grace. In fact, there's a sense in which they're actually your your credentials that highlight God's grace. I mean, think about the people that God uses throughout Scripture. Paul, persecutor of Christians. Peter, one who denied Christ. Moses, a murderer, slow of speech. David, an adulterer. Abraham, a pretty terrible husband. Um, and, and, And Jonah, a prophet who ran from his calling to go to Nineveh. Now he's heading to Nineveh, smelling like the inside of a fish, sea-weary, going to proclaim God's message to these people. That's who God uses. And as we're going to find out next week, Jonah is by no means a finished product when he walks into Nineveh. He's a mess, but God's still working with him, and he's going to use him here in a mighty way. And to be clear, in you know highlighting our sin and God's grace, please do not hear me saying that a changed life does not matter, okay? Just indulge in sin all the more so that God's grace is shown. That's, that's Romans 6 kind of stuff. But it's no accident that Jonah is obedient to God's call after having experienced God's rescue because God's grace does not simply forgive. God's grace transforms lives. God's grace gives us new motivation empowered by a new heart to love and to serve him in all areas of life. And certainly our lives, gotta, they, they need to give credence. They need to give evidence to the fact that we have, in fact, been rescued. But it's so important for us to keep in mind that our changed lives are the result not of our moral or spiritual or intellectual superiority. Changed lives are only possible because of changed hearts that have experienced God's grace. And that has got to make us humble people, not prideful in in, in how good we are, which is the temptation. The temptation for Christians is to walk around and be boastful about how much better we are than other people, which really isn't true. Um, But there's a vast difference between believers displaying our morality in a self-righteous, arrogant manner, as opposed to being humble people who, out of love and devotion, just seek to obey their Father. Because, frankly, an unbelieving world is not all that impressed with arrogant Christians who emphasize their spiritual or moral superiority. But they are impressed with the story of God's grace for sinners. The Ninevites are not going to be impressed with Jonah's morality but they are going to be impressed with Jonah's God who saves the ungodly, a God who justifies people like Jonah. And so God sends beggars to tell other beggars about him because they can relate to the experience of being beggars, which resonates with other beggars. Which brings us to our second point. There's no people that God cannot reach. Not only is it a big deal that Jonah is called to preach to people outside of Israel. He's going to the Ninevites. 
Jonah is going essentially from one belly of one beast to the belly of another. Verse 3 tells us Nineveh was a great city which spoke not only of the, the size of the city or the, or the population of the city, it spoke of the influence of the city. Nineveh was a big deal, okay? Nineveh mattered. It's the New York City of its day. It was sort of the cultural epicenter of all that the culture valued. And what did the Assyrian culture value? Well, we get a little bit of an indication here with verse 8, where he says, the king tells the people to turn from their, their violence. Now, that's not all that the Assyrians valued, but it was pretty prevalent in what was going on for them, okay? Uh, according to one scholar, the, the, the gruesome and vile nature of these people made Nazi Germany look tame. It's a place of torture. It's a place of murder. It's a place that, 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 that proudly embraced these, uh, these vices. And these people were the absolute worst of the worst, And yet, God instructs Jonah to preach to them. Verse 4, 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. 40, 40 days. It's a number in Scripture that that represents a time of of cleansing or purging. Now, we don't know if that's all that Jonah said or if that was simply like a summary of his message. But either way, the response to this message was as unexpected and miraculous as Jonah being swallowed by a fish. When this violent, depraved mass of people are confronted by this defenseless Hebrew prophet, rather than mocking him or murdering him or displaying his body on the front gate of the city as they were known to do, these people do the opposite. Verse 5, the people believe God. They hear Jonah's message and they respond favorably. And it doesn't appear that they even needed the 40 days to do it. You know, sort of cost-benefit analysis. we got to check up on this guy, Jonah's credentials or whatever. You know, figure out why, what we're doing. It really isn't that bad. They hear God's message, and they feel genuine remorse. Though the king is going to later tell everybody to participate, these people, on their own initiative, begin fasting and wearing sackcloth, communicating that they, they feel the weight of their guilt and shame. But they don't just feel bad. What we see here is repentance. It was a term that that we talked about last week. Uh, Repentance involves a turning away from sin. But, but, But to be clear, biblical repentance does not simply mean, you know, you're doing bad things, so stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Repentance is not, you're terrible, stop being terrible. Biblical repentance is to turn from sin, which is destroying us, and turn to a God who is merciful and loves sinners and longs to forgive sinners, which again completely changes the feel of of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful image. You get to turn to a father who, who runs after you and puts a ring on your finger and kills the fattened calf and celebrates you. But what makes repentance, the repentance of of Nineveh, all the crazier is that unlike Jonah, these people don't know God. God has not revealed himself to these people, okay? They aren't praying to capital L-O-R-D, God's covenant name. Look what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. They're simply hoping that God might respond with grace. And yet... 
to read Jesus in the New Testament, one gets the impression that there were genuine conversions in Nineveh. These people turned from sin and turned to God, which impacted their lives. It impacted how they lived. Because the fruit of repentance is not simply feeling bad. The fruit of repentance is a changed life fueled by the Spirit of God, motivated by genuine love and devotion for God. And that's happening here. And so God responds with grace. He relents. He doesn't send the disaster. Against all odds, God's reach extends beyond the normal parameters of what religious people like Jonah think God is capable of. The Ninevites? Like, really, the Ninevites? The message is clear. If God can reach these people, the worst of the worst, and extend grace to them, then there's nobody he can't reach. Which, of course, is not how we think. Because we all, in our minds, have those people, right? Those people that just seem beyond the pale. Yes, God's grace, sure. But those people are just too far gone. Or maybe we approach it going, yeah, I guess he could. You know, he's God and all, he's all powerful. But he probably won't. And again, we go, the Ninevites? Really? Who are those people for you? Who are those people for you? Who are the people whose actions or beliefs or culture or history or words leads you to think that they are beyond the hope of God's grace, that leads you to think that they're irredeemable? Think about yourself or, or, or think about ourselves as, as American Christians. Okay? How do we view unbelievers, especially the ones who act like unbelievers. Do we simply view them as terrible people who who need to get their act together? Do we view them as our political enemies corrupting our society? Or do we view them as people who need Jesus, as potential converts, as people who are blinded by the truth because of sin and need to be rescued the same way that we, apart from God's grace, would be blind? Do we view them as people who, if they were shown grace by us, it might lead them to experience God's grace in full. Now, of course, that's not to say that we should be indifferent to what's taking place in our culture. Don't hear me saying that. In fact, look at the impact that Jonah's message has on the city of Nineveh. The king gets wind of Jonah's message. He begins to personally repent, leading him through his influence to to implement reform throughout the city. But the reality is the king is simply putting into place what's already going on in the hearts of the people. Changed hearts lead to changed lives. But changed lives aren't simply lived in isolation. Changed lives impact the world in which we live. There's a section of the, the Lord's Prayer that, that we pray. It says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time we pray that, What you're praying is is for God's kingdom to be made manifest on this planet now. And what this means is that while God's mission may begin with changing people's hearts and saving their souls, it doesn't end there. It starts there. One of the most well-known passages of the Old Testament is this passage, Jeremiah 29.11. One of those passages that you maybe have memorized, see it on bumper stickers, t-shirts, 
throw pillows, whatever. Um, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now that passage kind of gets grossly used, you know, in ways that aren't really faithful to Scripture. Uh, but there are some things about it that we can appreciate as Christians. But, but if you read the entire chapter, Jeremiah chapter 29, what Jeremiah is talking about are these people, these, these exiles living in Babylon for 70 years, and what's that going to look like for them? And what Jeremiah instructs them to do during that chapter are two seemingly contradictory things. He calls them to protect themselves, to protect their identity as a distinct people. They're not to die out. They're not to assimilate into the culture. But he also calls them not to isolate themselves. You know, get in a sort of a commune over here, away from everybody, and just disengage completely. He calls them to seek the welfare of the city to which they are called, to seek the welfare of Babylon. They're to pray for Babylon, because if Babylon prospers, they will prosper. And the point of Jeremiah is the same as the point of Jonah chapter 3. It's also the point of, of John chapter 17. We've all heard the expression before that, that Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. It's kind of people paraphrasing John chapter 17. Christians are to be present, but they're to be distinct. But it's more than just that. Christians are called to be in the world, not of the world, for the world. Yes, the world's broken. And yes, God is opposed to the world when describing the powers that are in opposition to him. But it's important for us to remember that God loves the world. He created the world. He's for it. And he uses his people to further his mission in it. One of the constant refrains, I, for the last three years, I, I've, I've served with, with high school students. And so, you know, what do they think about? They think about boyfriends and girlfriends and, you know, existential angst or whatever. But, but when I, I used to minister to adults before that. And, and one of the conversations that I had a lot with sort of, you know, whether I'm talking to a 20-something adult, 30s, 60s, whatever, one of the conversations that, that just kept coming up was this feeling of, like, meaninglessness. This sense of, of the need for fulfillment in, in, in our life. Because there's a sense you wake up, and you eat breakfast, and you go to work, and you come home, and you take care of your responsibilities, whether it's family or, or whatever, and you throw some recreation in along the way, but, but there's just this question, this nagging feeling of, what is it all for? What does it all mean? Why, why, is, this, is this what life is? Can I take a guess why Christians might feel this way? I wonder if the reason Christians feel this way is because we, we might really know how we're saved, but we don't know why we're saved. Because wherever you are, wherever you live, where you work, who you're with, as a redeemed, adopted child of God, empowered by the Spirit, motivated by love, the love and mercy that you have received, you have an opportunity to promote Christ and his kingdom there. I don't mean by wearing t-shirts or you know, bumper stickers or whatever. Um, if you're into that, go for it, whatever. But that's, I think there's other ways um, And yes, that may involve communicating, okay? Faith comes by hearing. We have to tell people about Jesus. It's not enough just to be nice Christians over there by themselves. 
Um, but there is a sense in which we're called to live this stuff out. We're called to be people who, again, back to First Peter, can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay? People need to see the implications lived out. We are to promote Christ's kingdom by, say, engaging in business, honestly, or by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, or by being kind and gracious when we're tempted not to be, or by being hopeful as opposed to cynical, or by pursuing truth rather than simply our perspective, or by seeking creative solutions to love and to serve our communities, both Christians and non-Christians alike, all motivated by our love for Jesus and his kingdom. Bottom line is, Nineveh's going to look different because God's messenger went there, at least for a season. God's messenger arrived there, and these people, even these, these Ninevites, were receptive to his message, and by God's grace, the places where we're called will look different because of our presence there. And we pray that there's receptivity among those who encounter us. It's the mission of God to bring all of his creation under his rule, to rescue sinners from all nations, to reconcile all things in Christ, to bring in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. And and we get to participate in his mission, following the lead of Jesus, who was the ultimate missionary, the one who showed up to a place where he was called to promote God's message. Unlike Jonah, though, he wasn't received, despised and rejected, and yet through his sacrifice accomplished God's mission of rescuing his people, rescuing people like us, Gentiles, called to be the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation mentioned before. And we have the privilege, the privilege of loving and serving our king and pointing others to him as we participate in his work. And so may God's mission captivate us. May it capture our hearts and may it become our mission as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us into your kingdom, that you see fit to use people like us with all our mess, with all our struggles, all our baggage, as a testimony to your saving grace. And so would you empower us to live lives that would proclaim Jesus through our words and through our actions. Give us hearts of compassion. Give us greater perspective of how our lives can and do serve your kingdom both in beautifully ordinary and extraordinary ways. And give us faith to believe that you are at work, that you are capable of much more than we often give you credit for. Work now in us, in this community and beyond. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.